0: Bishop Schneider just told us that good bishops are intimidated. I talked with Bishop Spinoza, I just had an interview here with him, and he told me the same thing, he said they're intimidated, first by the culture, and then law, and now even the hierarchy.
1: Our final speaker is here because of all the speakers probably that we have on the roster in terms of years of Catholic activism in different degrees and levels of Catholic activism. I just think John Henry has been at the front line for such a long time. Uh, Life Cycle is at the front line, I think, as far as the Catholic uh, pro-life movement for years and years and years. Uh, I remember telling John Henry when he was beginning, to be much more interested in the traditional Catholic war, uh, be careful because you're so, you're so effective. You know, if you come into the traditional Catholic world, they are gonna say, oh, we can, at you know, least these guys are bomb throwers and all of that. Um, but he's a man of conscience, so he didn't let that stop him. He's been just as, as strong now in defending traditional Catholicism, Latin Mass, and so forth, as Life has always been with the, with the life movements and the family movement and so forth. So, uh, again, I put it at the end of this conference because I was convinced that people would stay for three days to hear uh, John Henry at the end of our conference. Well, just a, a man who I have tremendous admiration for, a man who I'm proud to stand with in the trenches every day. We have a separate uh, apostolate. But I'm always eager to point people to LifeSite News for the great work that they do. A courageous, Catholic, counter-revolutionary, a good man, a father, a husband, and a brother to all of us, a good friend, John Henry Weston.
0: 2022 was 25 years. These one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. What an immense joy. Uh, This is like family now, I mean, You know, you come to these, and I know so many of you, like when Michael asked in the beginning how many of you have been here before, there was a good number, but you know what? Most of you are returners, and and it's like, it's a family reunion, it's incredible. And as the times got darker and darker, and the divisions started to set in further and further, dividing even family members, your family's here. So I might start with Father Altman's words, you know, dear family, and that means so much. So Michael does this funny thing, right? He, he asks you to speak, and then he gives you a topic. And, you know, <laughs> you're always like, oh, OK. And he, of course, says you can change it up if you want. But I was once asked to speak in Kerala in India, and it was 2006. And uh, I went there, and they were supposed to tell me what I was to speak on. I knew generally the bishops wanted us to talk on openness to life. That's why they had my wife come when we had uh, seven kids already. And uh, they wanted to show by her, she wouldn't speak, but they wanted to show that you could still do that and be alive. But anyway, <laughs> um, so there, they never told me what I was going to speak on. And I got there and I thought, oh, may, I'm, maybe I'm not supposed to speak today. I was told I was going to speak multiple times a day, even and I, because I thought, okay. But then the first day came and I wasn't, You know, but I was told to show up for like a 6.30 prayer morning prayer meeting. And they prayed for like an hour. And I thought that was great. And at the end of the meeting, um, I was told I was speaking that day. Okay. So I figured, oh, I'm speaking sometime in the afternoon after they tell me what I'm going to speak on so I can go do that. And uh, they prayed over the people who were the speakers. And then they told you what you were speaking on. I presume they got it from the Holy Spirit or something. And then I realized I was first. (laughs) So that was really fun. So when when Michael gave me the topic, connecting the dots from the Second Vatican Council to the Synod on Synodality, I said, okay, this is my homework assignment. Boy, there's a lot of dots. So I can't do all the dots, but I know that we're supposed to be open to the Holy Spirit. I know that particularly because I had a guest on my show by the name of Christine Kengot, she's an interesting lady, she came on the show because she happened to give a rosary to to Jeff Bezos (laughs) and uh, hugged him and told him about the rosary, and he was very thankful for it. Odd, though, because what would lead that to happening? Well, she was at a restaurant and happened to see him. That's why. I thought, wow, that's pretty gutsy of you. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, I'm always open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit because of her priest. So she tells me the story of this priest. Now, this was hilarious, and I thought, wow. Because you know how you wonder... So what are the inspirations of the Holy Spirit? They're not often, do this now. That would be great. You know, like I always thought in the movies, like, all right, raise your arms, pew, two bullets go underneath. That was cool. Let's do something else. You know, duck now and go to this corridor. That would be just great. That doesn't happen, at least not for me. Um, But she told me the story of this priest. And she said, the priest made a resolution. As long as the inspiration that I feel it's not a sin, and it's not going to hurt anyone, me included. I'm going to do it. So he makes this resolution. The next day, he's pumping gas at the gas station. And um, he feels he should do a cartwheel. <laughs> and he says, that's completely ridiculous. So he continues filling up his car with gas. And as it's nearing, the, he can tell it's getting near full. He's like, ah. He made the resolution just yesterday, right? So he's like, OK, fine. He does a cartwheel, and you know how ridiculous that looks when you're wearing your clerics and you're like, anyway. (laughs) So he does a cartwheel. He's totally embarrassed. Now he goes back, finishes pumping his gas. He sort of sheepishly goes into the the shop to pay. And the woman behind the counter is weeping. And he's like, young lady, what's the matter? What's the matter? And she says, yeah, I saw the collar. And I said, God, if you're real, make that guy do a cartwheel. So We're gonna go with the Holy Spirit. I have to tell you a few of the ones of the connection dots that I'm gonna skip because there's way too many. I'm skipping just so that you know how important they are. I'm gonna skip the retirement of Benedict. That's definitely one of the dots. But we're gonna skip it. I'm gonna skip the catacombs pact. If you don't know what that is Go to Michael Matt's website and check out his video on the catacomb pact. It's very very important. I'm not even gonna tell you what it's about because it's so cool. It actually spells out a lot of what we're going through. The catacombs pack over at Remnant TV. Great job, by the way, Michael, Tess, Walter, whoever did that. It was incredible. Um, I'm going to skip the removal of the garb for priests and nuns, the shortening of the, of the habits for nuns. If you're interested in that, go check out on LifeSite News the story of Mother Miriam, because that was her whole Deal. So there's that. I'm going to skip something else that's massive and give you where to look it up. Evolution's acceptance. Look up the work of Hugh Owen, because it's incredible. The difficulty with this, the thing about evolution, is it's really, really sad. Basically it's led to the almost universal acceptance of the heresy of polygenism. If you don't know what that is, look it up. it's it's terrible because that undermines and it underlies so much of the revolution. Again, look up the work of Hugh Owen. You're going to find, sadly, that John Paul II. Uh, yeah. Anyway, open the door a little bit, but we're going to skip the equality of the religions, the the religious indifferentism, the. Thing that everybody thinks started with Assisi, but didn't. It started before that with Paul VI, who did the same sort of thing. Um, which actually led, actually, from Assisi, you can make a straight line to, to Pachamama and the whole bone whistle thing. You don't know about the bone whistle thing, it, it makes Pachamama look kind of lame, because yeah, with Pachamama you had them all bowing to the ground, and it was a, it was a priest who was there, and the Pope who blessed the statues, and they proceeded, processed it into St. Peter's, and sort of did a circle thing with the cardinals praying around it. But, In Canada, when he came, um, for the false uh, buried children, they weren't buried children, it's all false. But anyway, i apologized for that, which created massive anti-Catholicism in Canada, by the way. But nonetheless, when he did that, there was a shaman there, and I explained this last year, I know, but it's worth, if you haven't heard this yet, it's worth looking up the video so you can watch it, just so you can know the gravity of the situation we're in. The shaman blew the bone whistle, asked the pope and the cardinals there to close their eyes and put their hands on their chests, which they did. And he prayed to the northern grandmother, which is one of the directions, or western grandmother, excuse me, to open the door to the circle of spirits so they could come and join them there. No kidding. Um, I'm going to skip over the media manipulation, which is really, really weird, because... The church is involved. The church is open to the anti-Catholic, anti-Christ, anti-life, anti-family mainstream media. But they're totally closed to life news. I'll give you an example from two days ago. I have to be current, right? So because we're a daily news service, we have to be real current. So this is new news, it's not published yet. So I'm as you know the editor-in-chief, I get stuff that we're going to publish soon, but you'll find out now. Um, our Rome correspondent, Michael Haynes, was there, um, and Christophe Pierre was one of the ones getting uh, made a cardinal, and he was in the press scrum. And um, Michael walked in for LifeSite News with the actually the guy from EWTN. And um, Archbishop Pierre had just welcomed Reuters and CNN and whatnot. And then um, he asked Michael about who he was. <laughs> and uh, So he said, LifeSite, and this is the exchange. Explain to me, this is Archbishop Pierre, explain to me what is LifeSite? Michael responds, it covers Catholic news, life issues, he gets cut off. Archbishop Pierre says, yes, I know, I know. Which kind of Catholic news it covers is a question he was saying. And Michael says, all, all kinds, to be honest. Originally, it uh, focused on Then gets cut off again. Archbishop Pierre says, what do you want for the future of the church? Life's like, Michael Haynes is is a young, faithful, awesome Catholic. But that's a pretty big question. So he says, and he's from England. Wonderful, wonderful guy. He says, gosh, uh, a healthy future, really, to bring more people to the church, ultimately, and to help everyone. Archbishop Pierre cuts him off again. Do you love the Pope? He says. And then, the, sorry for us, it's an easy one. Michael responds, I do, I do indeed. Very English of him. Um, and he says, I pray very much for that he gets cut off again. Archbishop Pierre says, What does Life Site News say about the Pope? Um, <laughs> and um, he says, Michael responds, I think we give an honest appraisal of cut off again. Archbishop Pierre, you know why I'm asking. Uh, Michael says, I do. So I am not very happy with that. Okay, that's the end of the conversation. And then he refused to take any of our questions while he was taking the questions of all the mainstream media. So I'm going to skip over the media manipulation as well. But I want to get to a few of these dots that connect Vatican II to the Synod on Synodality because it's important to mention some of them. And some of them are really, really, really severe. So the first one... I'll mention is about silence and quitting the anathemas. So, up until the Second Vatican Council, you had a robust defense of the faith. It's very essential because heaven came to warn about one thing with the most stupendous miracle of all time, where 70,000 people saw the sun dance in the sky. And she gave them the first vision of hell, of course. But what did she say about it? She said, more people go to hell for sins of the flesh than for any other reason. She said, fashions will be introduced that will offend my son very much. She said, the decisive battle, this is, of course, in the letter to, from L- Sister Lucy to Cardinal Kafara, um, which, by the way, I should mention one thing. It was at Rome Life Forum, the event that Life LifeSite News founded in 2014 and has continued, to had to take a break over COVID, But it's going on again this year, October 31st, November 1st. If you want to come, please do. There's still a few tickets left. Bishop Strickland, who was here yesterday, will be there, as well as Cardinal Muller will be there. But she also said, the decisive battle between our Lord and the reign of Satan will be over marriage and the family, which is on now, said Cardinal Cephar, for the very first time at Rome Life Forum in 2017, which is on now, and he meant since the family sentence. And so I'm going to try in this talk to do what Father Pendergraft said. He, Father Pendergraft used to have this kind of last talk wrapping up and, and sort of encompassing everything. That's a challenge. So I'm going to try and incorporate some of what the other speakers have said. The first speaker being God. You ever notice, I'm sure many of you did notice, but the readings at the masses while we've been here, Now, I know that Michael calculated because he's so smart. He looked at the liturgical calendar and looked at the readings and said, we have to do it on those dates. I know it's not not convenient for us, but we're going to make it. No, he didn't do that. But God did that. He's the greatest planner. Listen to this. This was the first reading from Friday. But he that shall, from Matthew 18, of course, but he that shall cause one of these little ones that believe in me to sin. It were better for him that millstone should be hanged about his neck, and that he should be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's from Friday's, the launch reading at this conference. Then on Saturday, we get treated to Second Timothy 4. I charge thee, this is Paul to Timothy, right? I charge thee before God and Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead by His coming and His kingdom. Preach the word. Be insistent in season and out of season. Reprove, entreat, rebuke in all patience and doctrine. For there shall be a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and will indeed turn away their hearing from the truth, but will be turned into fables. But. Be thou vigilant. Labor in all things. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill thy ministry. These are the readings. These are the readings for this conference. That's just, and that's God speaking. So that fits in real nice. So silence is warned against by God. In fact, in one of the prophecies, I think it was quoted here, but it talks about how there will come a time when the one who should have spoken remained silent. I think that's Our Lady of Good Success, if I'm not mistaken. But actually, there's even Vatican teaching, even recent Vatican teaching, to warn against silence. If you look at the 1986 document from Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, signed by JP2, it was a letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church on the care, of uh, pastoral care of homosexual persons. It talked about how... You can never be silent about the harm of homosexuality, about the wrong of homosexual acts. Because it says that denies the people who are homosexual persons the care that they really deserve. So John Paul II and Radsinger, then Pope Benedict, warn themselves against silence, which is warned about in the Scriptures and by Our Lady. And yet, that's what we've had. We've had that from forever, since the Second Vatican Council. Who's had ten homilies about contraception or abortion or homosexuality, God forbid, and now about transgender stuff? You just it it almost is like it doesn't exist. So Bishop Schneider just told us that good bishops are intimidated. That. We've come to, and I, I, I talked with Bishop Spinoza. I just had a, did an interview here with him, and he told me the same thing. He said they're intimidated first by the culture, and then law, and now even the hierarchy. But you know, my talk, if it were to have like a subtext or a, or a subheadline, would be the detonation of the time bombs. It's reference to Michael Davies, whom I know you all know much better than me, but I've come to know and love after listening to Michael talk about him so much. Michael Davies warned that inside the Second Vatican Council were time bombs, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But the time bombs have been detonated with the Francis papacy like they never have before. Because the time bomb of this silence on all of these issues has been detonated under Francis such that we have him putting all of the foxes right into the headhouse. When you appoint as Cardinal Supich and McElroy and Gregory, who are no and Hollerich and the list can go on and on, who are known to be opposed to the teaching of the church on the alphabet issues, you are putting the fox in the headhouse. house, you are detonating those bombs. When you have multiple meetings with Father James Martin, and not with the Cardinals of the dubie. In fact, you answer the questions of Father James Martin, the duby of Father James Martin's homosexual group outreach, while refusing to answer the questions of the dubie of the four Cardinals. You know you've detonated the bombs. So, and I should add to that, too, when you take the population controllers whom John Paul II fought, and not only Do you celebrate them, but you bring them into the Vatican to become, like, circuit speakers? You've detonated the bombs. So there's another point to mention here. And it's actually very interesting. I don't recommend a book. No, I'm not paid to do this, and we don't get any kickback from it. But the book is very, very interesting. I had this young lady on my show. Her name is Julia Maloney. She's an incredible researcher, and she wrote a book, a very short book, well worth a read on the Sun Gallen Mafia. And in that book, you will find some incredibly interesting things. But the one I want to point to is actually, you know how everybody wonders, so with Pope Francis, is it like a pre-planned agenda, or is this, you know, just off the cuff and wants to be cool with the media, or is it like, you know, what is it? I can tell you after reading that book, it's completely scripted, 100%. Ed Penton's amazing work about rigged for the Synod. Wow, did he ever nail it? Because this whole thing is pre-planned. Listen to this, and go read the book, and you'll see all the references. This comes from Maloney's quoting the 1972 manifesto, The Shape of the Church, of Karl Rahner, one of the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. And probably the head of the Rhine group and she calls him very interestingly the godfather or the father of the Sanghellen Mafia because then he was you know a great he was uh, loved by Casper but also by Martini and there's lots and lots there but I can't unpack that but just listen to this this is Ronner's program that he gives in 1972 he dreamed of what the future church would look like he was dreaming of what Stefano Fontana calls a new church centered on the surrender to the world Ronner dreamed of a church where it was, quote-unquote, not clear, and these are references from Julia Maloney's book, so everybody's clear, that the divorced and civilly, so it was not clear that the divorced and civilly remarried in no circumstances could receive Holy Communion. He dreamed of a church with less moralizing and more formation of consciences. He dreamed of a church where it was obvious that celibacy must must not be imposed amidst priestly shortages, and where there was no reason in principle to ban women's ordination. Rahner dreamed of a church that implemented synodality, the right of priests and laity to cooperate in a deliberative and not merely consultative way in church decision-making. He dreamed of a church where it was not so clear what the possibilities were for Christians regarding the state of penal laws against abortion. since. No political party, these are his quotes, no political party in practice is so completely Christian in each and every respect. It was not so easy to say when a party can no longer rely on the sport of Christians and Catholics. Communion for the divorce and civilly remarried, the autonomy of conscience, synodality, the ordination of married men and women, the possibility of voting for pro-abortion politicians, these were the dreams of the man who might be called the father of the Sangalan Mafia. Words from Julia Maloney summarizing Karl Rahner. That's incredible. So if you're wondering if it was a program and it was outlined beforehand, oh, yes, it was. From Father Christopher Basden, we learned of the disastrous drop-off in the church after the council and the really eerie similarities between the attempt to extinguish the faith, the true faith, under Henry VIII, And how that lines up so well with post-Vatican II. That's really scary. Because the attempt in one was overt, we're going to kill this, and in the other, it's, no, no, it's about openness to the world so that we can be more popular, or whatever it was. Here's an aside, and I... Michael, Matt, I think you said it first. So, do you ever notice that all... Of the popes from the council onward are now saints? Yes. Isn't that weird? Since they have all presided over the most calamitous betrayal of Christ the church has ever seen. You can't really talk about the Second Vatican Council without referencing one of the world's greatest historians on the on the Council, and that's Professor Roberto de Maté. And there's something stunning about his deep dive into the Second Vatican Council. And I'll quote from him from an article, just so that you get this. This is, he says, in the spring of 1960, the concilian vota were collected, that is the 2,150 responses received from bishops all over the world who had been asked about subjects to be raised at the upcoming Vatican Council II. This material was handed over to 10 committees appointed by the Pope who worked under the supervision of Cardinal Ottaviani, Prefect of the Holy Office, and the old CDF, Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. In 1962, the first seven schemes, or working documents, if you will, for the Council's constitutions were submitted to the Pope, and these documents, on which 10 committees had worked for three years gathered together the best of the 20th century theology. They were texts which went to the very heart, to the problems of the age, and they did so in a clear and persuasive manner." Clear and persuasive language. These documents are incredible. Nobody knows about them, relatively nobody. They are They weren't even in English, to the work of a, of a certain priest whose name I forget, and he translated six, I think, of the nine. LifeSite translated the other three, which were on communism, so you can get all of them now, but they're incredible documents. Nonetheless, they were texts which did all that. In fact, John Twenty-Third, after he looked at them, Roberto DiMatti uh, relates that on all the schemas, according to uh, Vincenzo Fagioli, the same expressions are often repeated in the margins by the Pope. Good, excellent. The Pope Approved the drafts on July 13th, three months before the council opened, and he ordered that they be sent to all the council fathers as the basis for the discussions uh, of the general congregations for the Vatican Council. Guess what? He thought it would be over in three months. Of course it wasn't. It was over in three years. The Second Vatican Council concluded on December 8, 1965. And guess what? They threw out... All those schemas that they had spent three years working on, some of the greatest documents of the faith in modern times and they chopped them in the garbage and worked with whatever else. If You read these documents you'll see they threw out a treasure. So then came something which wasn't, we have something now which wasn't admitted to at the time and by all the apologists who came after. That was intentional ambiguity in the council documents. Now, a lot of people said, no, 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 that's not true. They're clear, they're clear. Well, no, no. They spilled the beans themselves. It's just wonderful. If you actually uh, go to um, site, you'll see two instances where Cardinal Walter Casper, one of the greatest fanboys of the Vatican Council, too, um, he admits, first in 2013 in uh, the Romano, in many places, he's talking about the council fathers, had to find compromise formulas. He says, the consular texts themselves have a huge potential for conflict because they're open the door to a selective reception in either direction. So that's very interesting. He's he's letting the cat out of the bag there, but he did it again in 2015, because in 2015, now we're talking about the synod on the family and his proposal. Remember, he's the one who... Francis urged him to do the proposal for a divorce, remarried communion. And guess what he said? He repeated the same thing as a proscription for the synod. He said, Now I propose to those who prepare the synod to prepare a text which can get the agreement of the whole, the great majority. It's the same method also we had in the council, Second Vatican Council. And he said, My suggestion is to find now a formula where the great majority can adhere. It's leaving it ambiguous on purpose, and that's the very thing that Michael Davies said are the the time bombs. So ambiguity is a tactic. Intentional ambiguity is a weapon. The time bombs of Michael Davies, and they are now being detonated. The tactic was used intentionally at the Synod, on the family, and then they were detonated not with a Morris Letizia, which many people think they were. They were de- detonated with the Acta Apostolicae Seris. After a was lit- written, you, you still had theologians trying to do mental gymnastics to interpret it correctly. Except then in the Acta Apostolicae Seris, which is like a rule book for bishops, it's spelled out. The Pope says the interpretation, the heretical interpretation of, I think it's the bishops of Buenos Aires, is the official interpretation, no other. And that allows for divorce, remarried communion. So the time bombs are detonated indeed. There's another demarcation point, that, another dot that is so important it can't be ignored, and that's the introduction of communion on the hand. I had an incredible interview with Bishop Schneider, a number of them, but in 2022 he repeated something that he said to me earlier. He said, communion in the hand is one of the grievous phenomenons and evils within the church. I would say the most grievous because we are trampling our Lord underfoot in our churches. Okay, think about what that means. Bishop Schneider knows all about the sexual abuse crisis. He knows all about scandal in the church, and he's saying the most grievous evil we have is communion in the hand. Because we are trampling our Lord underfoot in our churches, that the Lord in his majesty, hidden in this tiny small fragment of the host, or a particular part of the host is trampled, and this is so grievous and evil, we cannot simply continue. We must, as soon as possible, stop this, uncompromisingly stop. Enough, enough, he said. And thanks be to God, it's not only Bishop Schneider. Diane Montagna, in writing for LifeSight wrote about a book published by Father Federico Bortoli in 19, uh, 2018, The Distribution of Communion on the Hand, a historical, juridical, and pastoral survey. And She reported how Cardinal Sarah did the foreword, and he was at the time the prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline and Sacraments, the one in charge of the whole situation of divine worship and, and the sacraments. And he, he wrote in the preface of this book on the distribution of Holy Communion in the Hand, and I quote, The most insidious, diabolical attack consists in trying to extinguish faith in Eucharist by sowing errors and fostering an unsuitable way of receiving it. Truly, the war between Michael and his angels on one side and Lucifer on the other continues in the hearts of the faithful Satan's target is the sacrifice of the Mass and the real presence of Jesus in the consecrated quote. Holy Communion in the hand is the instruction um, it was allowed for in the instruction from May 29th, 1969, under Paul VI. The instruction was of the Sacred Congregation for Divine Worship, Memoriale Domini. And it was done, not as a proscription, but as a, well, okay, abuses are going on. And in that spirit of Second Vatican Council, where they don't condemn anything anymore, it was like, yeah, well, we'll just sort of, so it kind of is okay for them who are already abusing it, it'll be, yeah, that's good. And of course, the exception is made. The law, and it's universal. But you know what? The atom bomb, or the time bomb went off. It went off during COVID. It went off during COVID when we were all forced. Some of us, I would never receive Holy Communion in the hand, but a lot of us were forced under pain of not receiving our Lord at all to receive in the hand or nothing, including at Latin Masses. In the Archdiocese of Toronto, Archbishop Collins forbade Communion in the hand and ordered the Latin Masses, and some of them complied, to distribute Holy Communion in the hand. If you're wondering how we got to communion in the hand in the first place, how Paul VI was made to do that, comes from the same place that the new mass comes from. Annibale Bonini, who a lot of accounts now will tell you are a free, was a Freemason, especially if you look up the work of Father Charles Muir, he came on to my show, he's a regular on Faith and Reason as well, um, and um, he shows the evidence for that, but this is an incredible story from Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, because he was involved in this. And he was speaking to Cardinal Gut at the time. He was the head of the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline and Sacraments. And Archbishop Lefebvre said to him, Your Eminence, you are responsible for divine worship, and you accord permission for the Blessed Sacrament to receive in the hand they will know that this was published with the agreement of the prefect of the congregation for divine worship and he's telling this to the cardinal who's the one who has his signature on it as well and the cardinal cardinal god replies and i'll quote it for you excellency i do not even know if i will be asked for it to be done you know it is not i who command the boss is Bonini. If the Pope asks me what I think of communion in the hand, I will cast myself on my knees before him to ask him not to do it. But the time bomb was detonated, and it's now universal. In all those places in the world that never ever had community of the hand since COVID, they have it now. Also, have to touch on another one of these dots that's huge. And that's feminism. I will not serve. The same motto as the serpent himself. And it starts off, you might think, seemingly innocently. We have the introduction of altar girls and women lectors at mass, and the move toward ordaining women. Oh, but you might say that's a bit extreme. That'll never do that. No, 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 that won't ever happen. It's not about that at all. Well, it starts off then in just to show you where we came from and how severe this is. I just want to quote the traditional teaching of the church for a second. So this is the encyclical *Alate Sunt*. From 1755, Pope Benedict XIV, paragraph 29, says, and I quote, Pope Gelasius, in his ninth letter to the bishops of uh, Lucania, condemned the evil practice which had been introduced of women serving the priest at the celebration of mass. Since this abuse had spread to the Greeks, Innocent IV strictly forbade it in his letter to the bishop of Tusculum. Quote, women should not dare to serve at the altar. They should be altogether refused this ministry. We too, meaning Pope Benedict XIV, have forbidden this practice in the same words in our oft-repeated constitution, etsi pastoralis. You do have some other prohibitions of this 1917 code of canon law and so on, even repeated in the 70s um, in Liturgicae Instauraciones. But you'll notice with less and less clarity at each new venture. And then it was detonated because the practice is everywhere, but it was detonated. Um, It was detonated big time by Pope Francis just now when in January of 2022, he declared that the minor orders of lector, acolyte, um, catechist could be co- conferred on lay women in a, in a permanent way. So the bishops didn't normally do this permanent acolyte lector thing. It's just you're asked to do it and you do it. He's allowed it now for all lay people and women included. Now, this is controversial, I guess, especially in our day, which is so totally feminist, it's hard to recognize. You wonder what's wrong. It's not not an ordained ministry. We're just talking about, you know, serving at the altar and, and, and stuff like that. Well, there's a problem with all of this. Mark Hauck's talk was one of the best talks I've ever heard in my life. And his thing about the stations and his passion that he went through was incredible. But there was no more incredible point in that talk than when he talked about his wife, Ryan-Marie. And what she said when he knew he was going to prison for 11 years. His lawyer, one of the best lawyers around, told him he was going. And you know what, for guys, it's not about leaving on the battlefield, for the battlefield and being scared of getting shot or whatever. It's not about scared of going to jail or whatever. It's about leaving your family. It's about abandoning your family. And he's given the plea deal. Nothing, no time in jail, no nothing. All you have to do is sign that you were guilty. You can't say no by yourself because you gotta go to your wife and there's a mixture of your feelings. So you don't want to betray the pro-life movement, but you also don't want to betray your family. And you've got this whole bunch of little kids. And he goes home. And what did Ryan Maurice say? You're not going to do it because you'd betray the movement. And if you are going to do it, don't come home. <laughs> Father Pendergraft reminded me when I was talking to him about how incredible I thought that was, he reminded me that that's the women of the Vendee, too. When the men were coming home, they were like, oh, no, you don't. (laughs) What do you think our blessed mother told our Lord? He had that same feeling. I think of all the things... He would have hated about going to Calvary 4. It's not the pain, although he could see it and know it in a way that nobody else could see their torture. It wasn't so much anything but the seeming betrayal of his mother. I'm sure he was tormented by Satan with that. What do you think she did? She said amen. She immolated herself for her son. She, the woman, would by her own immolation crush the head of the serpent. That is real power. That is the woman created as a helper for man who immolates herself so that the man can sacrifice himself to his father. In the great work of St. Louis de Montfort, to whom I owe my life and my soul, he makes a comparison between Our Lady and Father Abraham. He says, how Father Abraham is called Father Abraham because of his great faith. He believed that his 90-year-old wife could bear a child for him. He believed, so much so, that he was willing to sacrifice his only son but was stopped before the sacrifice. Mary was asked to believe as a virgin she could conceive and bear a son. And the sacrifice wasn't stopped. So she is the mother of all of us and of God. From Diane Montagna we heard of the real women who in this fight are saying that they are recognizing the true men, the true shepherds, the true apostles, and it's them that they will follow and no forgeries. There's a prophecy that uh, I became much more aware of, thanks to Michael Matt. He is such, you know, he gets us into such trouble all the time. <laughs> when I was here last year, he played at the end this video of the Shard pilgrimage. And Michael, to be honest, had asked me for years to come and speak on the pilgrimage and come to it. And I was like, yeah, I will, and of course you don't get to. And then I saw the video and I was like, oh, man, Okay, Michael, I'm coming. Like, like ten minutes after watching the thing, I've, I've got to get to him and say, "Oh, yeah, I'm coming. Okay. It was brutal, but it was good. Three days, 70 miles, wow, unbelievable. And then we went to Our Lady of La Salette up in the mountains. It's unspeakably gorgeous. Our Lady of La Salette said, Rome will lose its faith and will become the seat of the Antichrist. The demons of the air with the Antichrist will perform great prodigies on earth, And in the airs, and men will pervert themselves more and more. She adds, God will take care of his faithful servants and men of goodwill. Now, that's very interesting. As we're thinking about all these bombs that are being detonated, can Our Lady defend us? Can Our Lady protect us even from the bombs? Well, actually, yes. She literally can. if you remember when Enola Gray dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, August 6, 1945, at 8.15, half a mile from the Jesuit church of Our Lady's Assumption, there were eight members of the Jesuit community there who prayed the rosary daily. And after the literally pulverization of everything around them, there they were, just fine. Father Hubert Schiffer, the the religious community, none of the other priests, all of them were fine. Not only are they fine for the blast, they don't suffer any of the radiation effects, either. But if you think that's weird, many of you have heard of that that story. Do you know the same thing happened again? In Nagasaki? And this time it was the Franciscan friary, established by Maximilian Kolbe, also unharmed after the atomic bomb went off there. And also, because they played the rosary, and also, no radiation effects either. So, yes, Our Lady can protect us from the bombs that are going off all over the place. Some of us are called to martyrdom. And I don't only mean the white kind. In this room, I am convinced there will be martyrs, red martyrs. But it's actually in this room that I know you can do it, because you so love Our Lady, we heard Mark Haupt's testimony and many of us gulped and said, wow, Lord, could I come anywhere near that? I'm going to tell you the story of another hero who, life-saving means we were there every day for the trials, uh, the FACE trials, the Federal Access to Clinic Entrances Act trials for these amazing pro-lifers. One of them has been a hero for many, many years. She spent so much time in jail. She's got a family, many kids, husband. Her name is Joan Andrews Bell. I'm sure most of you know her. But what was really stunning about this time was, yes, they got jailed. They weren't even allowed to go home after, you know, the ruling. And they're in prison for, oh, I think, 11 years. She wants to make her prison time a reparation time. She wants it to be like a hermitage. In fact, she wrote this. I'm so very grateful for everyone who would want to send me commission—sorry, uh, commissary money or write me a letter or visit me in prison, but I hope you will be able to understand why I'm pleading with you not to do any of these. Please, the short explanation is that I want my prison stay to be a time of undistracted prayer as well as a time of penance for myself and our nation. I want to make my cell, as it were, a cloistered monastery cell. In a Carmelite monastery, the nuns are only allowed two visits a year from family, and depending upon the specific monastery, they're only allowed two to four letters a year from family. Therefore, that is what I want to emulate. My family will visit when they are able and will write, so I will have that. I love each of you so very much. We in the pro-life movement are as much family as could possibly be. At this point, I cannot be on the front lines with you, but in my prayers and in my heart, I am with you and our precious unborn brothers and sisters who are suffering martyrdom. I am afraid that the only way I can bear not being with them and you at the killing places is by making of my life behind these walls a time of constant prayer and whatever little additional sacrifice I can embrace. I join my prayers with yours. We are united in him, our Savior, and our Blessed Virgin Mary." That's Joan Bell. Our Lady of La Salette also added these words. She said, I address a pressing call to the earth, a call to the true disciples of the living God who reigns in heaven. I call all the true imitators of Christ-made man, the only and true savior of men. I call men my true devout ones who have given themselves to me so that I may lead them to my Son. Those that, in other words, I carry in my arms. Those who have lived of my spirit. It is time they come out and come forth to enlighten the earth. Go and show yourselves as my beloved children. I am with you. And in you, as long as your faith is the light which enlightens you in these days of sorrow. May your zeal make you famished for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Fight, children of light, you the few in numbers who see, for behold, the time of times, the end of ends. In the very beginning of my talk, I read from the scriptures and in the conclusion of Paul's words to Timothy he says this because when we are ready to accept the martyrdom that's before us that we need to accept in the words of Mark Hauck we know what's in store for us As St. Paul says, for I am ready even now to be sacrificed. The time of my dissolution is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. As to the rest, there is laid up for me a crown of justice, which the Lord, the just judge, will render to me in that day. And not only to me, but to them also that love is coming. And that, my friend, is you. That's you who must accept the martyrdom that is at our doorstep. And you can do so with great joy. You have heroes all around you, for you are them. You have fought the good fight, you remain faithful. You're my heroes. Michael Matz, and so many of us strive to give you the ammunition you need to fight the good fight. From all of us at LifeSite News, we bless you, we thank you, we pray for you. God bless you, my friends.